Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Oh, save your applause, trust me. Um, <laughs> good evening, my name is Janelle Riley. I'm the Associate Features Editor at Variety, and I am so thrilled to be here tonight for the SAG Foundation conversation with not just the biggest actor working today, but the best. And it's very rare that those two things collide. Uh, since bursting onto the scene with 1990s, 1993's This Boy's Life, this is an actor who has continued to make bold choices and deliver outstanding performances in a wide variety of genres. Um, over the course of his career, he's played everything from an autistic teenager, Romeo himself, Howard Hughes, Gatsby, Hoover, and of course, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, 20 years ago, he received his first Oscar nomination for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. And just last month, he was nominated for his fourth Oscar as an actor for The Wolf of Wall Street and his first as a producer for the same film. I am so honored, so pleased, so intimidated to welcome Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Of course. Uh, congratulations. I was going to say on a great year, but really a great 20 years. Um, but most recently on your two Oscar nominations for Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, can you tell us how you heard the news? I was falling in and out of sleep uh, in, my, in my house. And I think uh, I, uh, I had the television on it. I don't know. It came on at 4 or 5 in the morning. And, and then it woke me up uh, around 6. No one called me, actually. Uh, which is what happened before, and I, I, I saw my name up on the uh, on the screen. It was pretty amazing, pretty shocking. I didn't expect it actually. Really? Yeah. I know people always say that, but you—I mean, it was a tough year for actors. There were some amazing performances. Really, a great year for movies. Really, I mean, yes. truly. I, I you know I've oh, we're talking about I, I suppose a retrospective on my life, but I have seen you know different ebbs and flows in the industry and. I got to say, this year is pretty astounding. A lot of, you know, outside financing has come in, and and uh, you know, greenlit films that I don't think would normally be financed, and therefore there have been a lot of you know outstanding performances as well. I'm really excited to be you know just in the conversation this year. It's been great. Uh, I want to go back and start at the beginning because you are, I understand, one of those rare creatures I've heard about, a Los Angeles native. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> you were actually born and raised here. I was born uh, in Cedar sinai which is now the Scientology Center, the old one on uh, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in, uh, on Hollywood and Western, which is kind of a well-documented area because it was uh, uh, Bukowski's safe haven where he would sort of roam around and write. My father was, would also carry me around in a, in a, in a crib and, and run into Bukowski, but it was a kind of a 
I, my parents both came from New York and they had this postcard image of utopian Los Angeles and Hollywood and then we kind of moved into the mecca of prostitution and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and drug addicts. So that's, that's where I grew up and uh, then later on moved to Silver Lake and Los Feliz for a long period of time after that. But um, yeah, I always, I, I was, I'm from LA, born and raised here, but as I've said many times before, I never felt like I was a part of the uh, Hollywood system. Mm -hmm. I always felt like this weird outsider. And I, I think that if it weren't for the fact that I had a mother that really took the time to listen to a kid that said, you know, I, I want to do this for a living. This is what I know I want to do. This is my passion. Uh, you know, a 10, 11 year old kid, if it hadn't been for her taking me to auditions in the sheer proximity of being, going to a school that accepted me in Beverly Hills, uh, and then being able to drive to the Valley or drive to, you know, Hollywood on the way back from school, I probably wouldn't be doing this for a living because, um, you know, if I lived in any other location, I don't think my dream would have been a, uh, a possibility. It might have happened. It might have just taken a little bit longer. Well, you know, I think, to tell you the truth, I think that, you know, it's a combination of, uh, you know, uh, being in the right place at the right right time and being prepared for it and and being aggressive about it and sticking with it you know i i don't know i mean i i'd done a lot of television and and uh commercials before then but it was really this one role that launched my career and that career and that was this boy's life you know that was the truth of the matter i, I was at the right place at the right time and aggressively going out on auditions uh, when did you know you wanted to be an actor? I mean, you started at such a young age. Did you think of it as a career or were you having fun? I, uh, I just, I like I said, I always felt like an outsider because I knew of people, you know, that were in the industry. I just didn't know how to get into it. Um, and I, I remember going to cast uh, uh, different agents when I was nine or ten years old. I was rejected twice. I remember there was like this sort of cattle call of kids and I lined up. It was like a prison <laughs> photo or something like that. And I'm standing there like this. And I had, um, I had this crazy uh, breakdancing haircut from when I was breakdancing. And I kind of dressed in hip hop clothing. And I remember they went, yes, yes. Went to me and went, nope, yes, yes, nope, yes, wow. yes. And that was it. So I got rejected a couple times. And then I just kept asking and asking and asking. And I remember my dad saying, just stick with it. Someday you'll have your day. And, I, and then I, I came back, I think, two years later and finally got an agent, um, Harry Gold, with uh, Bonnie Leidke. Bonnie Leidke was my first agent. And I know you started doing commercials and TV mm -hmm. appearances like Santa Barbara and um, Parenthood the first time around. They did yeah. Parenthood. Uh, was it a lot of on-the-job training or had you taken any classes? Well, my favorite class was uh, drama school, um, drama class in, in high school. I was, you know, it was the only thing I did exceedingly well in, everything else. I was pretty mediocre in, um, except for biology. I was pretty good in that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, my first job was living with a parent who takes drugs, which was an educational <laughs> kind of after school thing. And then I, then I got a commercial for Matchbox Cars where I played a little gangster. and opened a matchbox set and raced this other kid. And uh, I couldn't believe I got that job. It was, it was, uh, I was excited. From that point on, I was like, this, if I could do this for a living, I, if, if I seriously can get paid for this, and this is a possibility, let's, let's go for it. Let's, let's just keep 
being aggressive and, and uh, do it. I mean, auditioning at any age is a, is a cruel, cruel process. Horrible. <laughs> yeah. It's the worst. What's it like as a kid? I mean, how do you handle that rejection? You know, it's interesting because I remember, you know, you're sort of set up and you're put uh, into this system where I think that you're supposed to be a jack of all trades and you're 11, 12 years old and you're sort of conditioned to say, well, you know, the casting director's there and say, well, can you juggle? And you're like, absolutely I can juggle, you know. <laughs> you know, can you ski? Hell yeah, you know, I'm, I'm your man, you know, I'll do whatever you want, you know. Little tap dancing show. So you're supposed to, like, set yourself up as, as somebody that can, you know, um, you know, basically do anything that they want. And I remember sort of having that attitude for a while and I didn't book a job for like a year at like 12, 13 years old. And I know that's not, that's like a big sob story, but, <laughs> the, the, but the truth is it was that year of like, re, like rejection where I finally said to my, I kind of, I suppose I took a different attitude towards the audition process. And uh, I started to get jobs after that. And I think it was really because I said to myself, you know, I'm not dependent on this job. You know, I'm not, this isn't going to define me, you know, and I started to sell myself less, prepare more for the, for the roles, you know, you know, really investigate the characters as much as I could and uh, not feel like, you know, my self-worth was dependent on uh, whether I booked the job or not. And I think that's finally what clicked with me and I realized that casting directors weren't always necessarily looking for the, you know, uh, the Broadway showman that could do whatever they wanted, but somebody that had, uh, you know, I don't want to say a little edge to them, but, you know, a different attitude about the audition process. Because, uh, you know, you focus more on the work, you focus more on, on the character rather than selling yourself constantly to these people, which is, you know, and the auditioning process at a young age was kind of cutthroat. I mean, I, I remember a kid bringing a gun to an audition. A I, real I do, one? Yeah, a real gun. <laughs> it was a kid that Did brought a gun. Did he get the part? <laughs> he might have gotten the role. He might have gotten the role. But, you know, you'd go in there. And I, I met one of my best friends uh, ever, Toby McGuire, at an audition. And, you know, there's this whole dynamic with mothers there and, like, mm -hmm. what kid is doing what. And she, she, said to, <laughs> she said to Toby, and I was just doing karate kicks over at him and like having a good time. She's like, watch out for that kid. He's trying to psych you out, Toby. Don't, don't, get, into his, don't get into his mind games. And, and, uh, and I was like, I was just having fun. I like, you yeah. know, I want to hang out with him. But it was this very competitive environment for kids yeah. at that time. Yeah, and still is, you know, I'm sure. You spoke about, you really, the, the next movie is the one that really broke you out, This Boy's Life. Yeah. I believe, were you on Growing Pains at the time and they had to allow you out to yeah, do it? Yeah, yeah. Wow. What a wonderful group of people to give me that opportunity too because I, I think that they kind of, uh, they foresaw that it was probably the last season and I had three or four, three or four episodes. And I didn't know, you know, contractually they didn't need to let me out to go uh, do this movie, but you know, thanks to the support of the cast and everyone that who was so lovely, they they kind of lobbied for me to be able to go do this movie, and so they wrote me out of um, out of the season, getting readopted by my father because I was a homeless kid on on uh, Growing Pains, and I got to go do this boy's life. That's why you're readopted by your father. Yeah. This is all coming together for me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
This Boy's Life, for those of you who don't know, and shame on you, uh, is an adaptation of Tobias Wolff's memoir about growing up with an abusive stepfather. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I've spoken to the director, Michael Caton Jones, who said he saw over 400 kids for this movie. I mean, do you remember the audition process? Oh, yeah, very well. <laughs> and at one point, I believe it was narrowed down to like maybe five kids and you and Toby. Yes. We're both in the final five. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh, is that funny? <laughs> uh, do you remember the audition when you first met De Niro? That was, yeah. I mean, that was one of those incredible auditions that came around that I, I suppose every kid had been waiting for for a long period of time because it's just not that often that you get a starring role above Robert De Niro in this incredible, you know, Screenplay and was you know Ellen Barkin and Michael Caton Jones and it was just everyone was sort of fiending for this role and um, I, I got down I suppose to the final five and there was like a last sort of day Toby was there and I I do remember thinking to myself uh, I got to do something I got to do something to stand out and um, in the audition it was Art Linson Michael Caton Jones Art Linson was was the producer and De Niro and I remember uh, there was a mustard jar scene, and he had to jam a mustard jar in my eye re re repeatedly. It was a, an abuse scene. And uh, the script sort of didn't call for it, but I got up and I, he said, no, is it empty, is it empty? And I got up and I screamed, no! Like com completely unnecessary, but I screamed in his face, <laughs> and I sat there, you know, with my head, uh, you know, looking like a red tomato, and, and, and everyone, started laughing at me in the, in the entire room. De Niro, everybody was in hysterics. And I sat there frozen thinking, oh my God, I just screwed this entire opportunity up. And I just sat there frozen. And then, you know, Bob in traditional De Niro fashion kind of just looked at me and went, it's good, it's good, it's good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then, you know, we carried on doing the scene and I think I actually had dinner with De Niro recently, and he told me, "No, I was the one who said I was the one who said you should get the get the job," which was very sweet. Mm -hmm. So he told me that, which was very cool. And uh, and yeah, I mean, as far as memories concerned are concerned, that I'm the most nostalgic about that movie, and I remember every single day on set because everything was so new to me, having come from you know straight from a sitcom where everything was very relaxed on set. Everyone was constantly joking around to having, you know, De Niro walk on set. Mm -hmm. And the difference, the, the, the sort of dynamic and presence that he had with the crew was just, I was like, what, you know, what is going on here? I don't, I, I don't quite, I, I don't quite fathom what, uh, what everyone's so serious about. And then I saw him sort of go through his process, the, the improv, the, you know, the, 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 just the technical work was just, something that I witnessed every single day and really, really blew me away. Because I didn't know how to conduct myself on a set. I was just sort of a, a wild animal. And it was really, it was really Michael Caton Jones that, you know, gave me some of these incredible fundamentals about making a movie. You know, every time I would sort of, you know, get tired of a scene or not want to uh, persist, you go, paint is temporary, film is forever. You go back in there and you give it everything you possibly can, you know, and then, you know, I remember seeing and Toby actually. We made a vow, Toby and I. We said, whoever gets um, get the role, gets a role, we gotta. Whoever gets the lead, we gotta fight for some. You know, one of us to get a role in this movie. So that was my one request that Toby got a a, a role in the movie, and he has a small role in the film too. And we were, I remember Michael Caton Jones 
sitting there and we're all sort of goofing off and being kids, being 15-year-old kids. And, you know, he went up to Toby, who was goofing off with me right before a dramatic scene, and he goes, you know, leave him alone. He's like, why, why, why? He's like, an actor prepares. And he sent me off to the corner. He goes, you go, you go focus on what the scene means. And I, and I did. You know what I mean? It was those types of basics that, that were, you know, lifelong lessons that, that I learned from that movie. I mean, I really learned everything mm -hmm. about making movies from that one experience. Did you ever get over the intimidation of, you know, being in a film with Robert De Niro? Did it fade as you worked together? Oh, no, I'm never. No, no, I'm still not to this day. I mean, uh, uh, he, you know, he is my favorite actor of all time. He really is. He's, uh, that relationship with him and Scorsese uh, just influenced every one of, of my friends in, in the industry that I've met through the years. He, that is the sort of golden relationship of cinema to me. I mean, it just gets no better than that. That run of films that they did together, it's just can't even talk about it. It's, it's that mind-blowing. I believe you've also said, you know, like I said, you, you weren't be training as a kid, but you were reading a lot of books on Meisner technique. Yeah, I, I did. I did. I mean, I never went to a formal acting. I, it was only until really the aviator uh, that I started working with Larry Moss, who, uh, you know, it was, it was the first film that I... Uh, I, I had produced, that I had thought of, it was sort of my concept, and uh, I felt like I needed to brush up on, 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 the, on my technique, so that's when I really started doing formal tra training, and, and he was, he was an, it was an amazing experience with him. I mean, he was, uh, it was, it was more than learning how to be a better actor, he was a life coach. It was yeah. like, he's like, okay, the first day, he was like, all right, you want to you wanna go over this stuff? I'm like, yeah, yeah, let, let's do it, and he's like, okay. You're Howard Hughes. You're in your your plane. This is your cocoon. This is your sanctuary. Um, show me how you fly a plane. I'm like, well, <laughs> I haven't really. He's like, come on, don't you know? Basically, sit in that chair and do it for me right now. I'm like, well, I haven't quite prepared. He's like, don't you pull that shit with me? <laughs> He's like, you get in that goddamn cockpit right now and you show me who the hell Howard Hughes is. You do it in front of me right now. I'm like, okay, shit. <laughs> I mean. And, and from there, we, you know, we started working on breaking down this, this script in a way that I'd never had, had before. I have to say I'm impressed because most people, you know, don't get an Oscar nomination and have like many hit films behind them and then choose to go see an acting coach. I think everyone can always, you know, brush up on their technique. It is, you know. What we do is uh, takes a lot of research. It take, I mean, if you really want to inhabit a role, it takes, a, it takes a lot of work and training, and I think it's incredibly important to constantly, no matter what, how, how successful you are, it's incredibly important. So after This Boy's Life, you went on to play Arnie Grape mm -hmm. and What's Eating Gilbert Grape, um, and this was a turning point. I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, this was a turning point in a, in a lot of ways because I understand you actually turned down another movie just for the opportunity. To, you, you, I don't even think you had an audition lined up for Gilbert Grape. I did have an audition lined up okay. for it, yeah. No, I was, it was one of those situations where, you know, I did this movie, This Boy's Life, and uh, it hadn't come out, come out yet, but there was this one role that I wanted to play desperately, and I, but I started to get, uh, um, you know, offers 
offers for, for other movies. And uh, there was a big Disney movie that I, they wanted me to do. And I don't know where I got those little balls at 16 years old to say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait it out because I want to audition for this other film. But if there's one thing that I'm really proud of in my, uh, in my entire career, it's that moment mm -hmm. at, at 16 to say that you know, and do that and have that sort of uh, conviction of what I wanted to do. That's the one thing I'm really proud of. Because the other movie was an offer, wasn't it? Yeah, it was <laughs> for a lot of money <laughs> at that time, which was, which sounded great at the time. But uh, I said no, yeah. Did you have a good support team at this point? An agent, a manager? Was yeah, my, I, my father would always sort of steer me towards interesting projects. You know, for example, doing Playing Arthur Rimbaud was never something that was on my radar. And my dad's sort of, uh, he's an incredibly well-read person. And he's like, look, you know, I know you're getting offered these other things, but take a look at this guy, Arthur Rimbaud. He was kind of the James Dean of his era. He was a very radical poet, changed poetry at that time. And, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, but just, you know, you know <laughs> take a little special attention to that one. And through the course of my career, he's always, you know, gently said to me, hey, you know, you might want to take a look at this. I haven't always listened to him, of course, but, you know, it's been great to have somebody like that. Uh, what was it about the part of Arnie that, that spoke to you so strongly? I, I was a big fan of Lasse Hulstrom, and My Life as a Dog, I remember seeing with my mother in the theaters and being blown away by that film. And I was also a huge fan of Juliette Lewis. Uh, I saw Cape Fear and I was just like, this is one of the greatest actresses I've seen come out uh, in this industry in a long time. And of course, getting to work with Johnny Depp was, was, uh, was a big, but, but it was the role, you know, it was the role. I, I remember talking to my agents and, and them saying to me, look, this is a real, if you really, you know, want to do a special kind of character and really go for something a little different, you know, this could be it for you. So. You know, I, I really, f and Lassa gave us um, these tapes, these tapes of a kid that he wanted to model Arnie off of. And, you know, I kind of just obsessively watched that for a week and imitated what was on the tapes. Mm -hmm. And then after I got the role, it was a whole other process of, uh, you know, uh, investigating that role. Now, I don't think you found out until after you'd gotten the part or maybe even after the movie was done, but Lasse originally didn't want to cast you because he thought you were too good looking. Oh, yeah, that's what I heard afterwards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I remember getting the role. I actually remember the moment when I got Gilbert Grape. It was, I was so excited because I'd said no to a few things, and I was with, I think, Toby and my friend Kevin were doing Hot Rod Brown Class Clown or something like that, a television show, and I was in his trailer, and we were in an Airstream, and I remember jumping up and down and hitting my head and we were all sort of celebrating and rolling around and wrestling. It was a great moment. It was like, it was like uh, winning the lottery, really. Yeah. Toby didn't go out for Gilbert Grape, too, did he? I don't think so. <laughs> okay. But like I said, I have a terrible memory. <laughs> terrible and he's memory done just that. fine, so we don't have to feel bad for him. Uh, and once you actually landed the role, um, I understand you continued to sort of study this character by, by spending time at a, was it a, a home? Yeah. For someone who, for people who had a condition like Arnie's. I, again, I, I sort of, this was really the first distinct character that I was playing. So I tried to emulate, I suppose, what I saw Bob do <laughs> on set. And, um, you know, I, I went, I said Lassa, he was kind of involved with structuring the script and 
I think he was kind of just expecting me to do what I did in the audition. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go to, uh, you know, a home in, in, in Austin, Texas and spend some time with some kids who have mental disabilities. And I spent about a week there. And I remember coming to him with this checklist. <laughs> and, he, and it was like a hundred different little attributes that I learned from hanging out with these kids. And I said, will you just show me what you want me to do? <laughs> He's like, no, I, why don't you just act those out? So I did all of them. I said, I think I'm thinking of one, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty-four. And he's like, okay, you do that. You do that. And uh, I remember the first day being incredibly nervous, and we did a lot of takes, did a lot of takes with Lhasa, and I felt like I had, it was a catastrophe. But the more I was on set, the more I got used to the atmosphere and sort of got my, uh, you know, got my feet into the role it just sort of took on a life of its own and it was it was a lot that that role was so fun because I wasn't dependent on the screenplay whatsoever I mean I had my own set of rules I could do whatever the hell I wanted I mean it was sometimes it was like a, you know a dramatic scene for Johnny and I would just be throwing spaghetti in the in the air <laughs> and and they'd and you know Lasse would say Are you sure you want to do that I'm like I don't know this is what I would be doing he's like oh, all right you go for it <laughs> And it was, it was incredibly freeing because I didn't have to, uh, and I, we paid attention to the script, but it was so loose, mm -hmm. you know, everything was so incredibly loose and so improvisational. And I really just lived in my own world. It was great. It was awesome. It was a great experience. And for that role, you were named Best Supporting Actor by the National Board of Review, and you received your first Golden Globe nomination and your first Oscar nomination at the age of 19. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was it like going through, you know, that whirlwind? I, and you probably couldn't have expected that from this, this small little movie directed by some foreigner. No, I, did, I didn't <laughs> even know what the hell was going on, to tell you the truth. I, uh, I just remember when they told me that I was nominated, I was like incredibly excited, shocked. And then my first reaction was, I just, I just don't want to go up on stage and accept anything because <laughs> they told me a billion people watched you yeah. give award speeches and I said I, I don't want to you know I told my mom I don't want to go up there mom <laughs> he's like well you have to go you have to go you have to go do this but that's but I was incredibly shocked I remember going to a screening and somebody complimented me afterwards and I you know I was just completely unaware of mm -hmm. anything that was going on you know it's nowadays you're infused with all this stuff about awards and and this and that and box office and I mean, at that time, it was just, I, I had no idea. I mean, I didn't even read a, a single review. It was yeah. just like, you know, uh, a random person coming up to me after seeing a screening saying, hey, good job. And I'd be like, cool. You know, that was, it was a much different time. So are you aware, aware that Janet Maslin of the New York Times called your turn show-stopping? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. Like I said, I didn't read anything. It was just, it was nice to get a reaction from my, you know, my friends and people that I knew. Uh, did that film or the Oscar nomination, I mean, change your career? Did you find more offers were coming to you? Certainly, yeah. I mean, after that, for sure, yeah. Um, things accelerated mm -hmm. after that for me, for sure. But again, it seems like you made very interesting choices. You did two small films. Um, uh, you mentioned playing Arthur Rimbaud in uh, Total Eclipse, and you also played Jim Carroll in The Basketball Diaries. Yeah, that's right. Totally yes. forgot for The Basketball Diaries. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are really interesting choices, especially, you know, for someone who's 20 at the time, I think. I think I was even younger. I think I was 18 
when I did mm. uh, Basketball Diaries. I think so. Yeah, because I was in New York for the first time in my own apartment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was, uh, I, uh, that was a, a role that I really fought for and really wanted. And it was incredibly low budget. God, I mm. think we did it for $2 million or something like that in New York. And um, that, was another, that was another role that I was really, really passionate about. And uh, I just it was incredibly exciting, incredi incredibly exciting time. What eighteen-year-old is passionate about Jim Carroll? <laughs> well, I read his, you know, his his poetry and yeah. his and his book, and I remember talking to my my parents about New York at that time, and uh, I just thought it was so beautifully written. I, I, yeah. Um, this also began a trend of yours of playing real-life people, which you'd continue with movies like J. Edgar and uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Obviously, uh, what is it that attracts you to real people? <laughs> I suppose when you're reading a screenplay and you're moved by something that happens in it to know that it happened in reality, you just get a different sort of emotional attachment to it. And oftentimes people's lives are just so much more surreal and interesting and, and obscure than, you know, something that a writer can create from their own imagination. So uh, I don't know, I've had this weird, I've never really questioned why I, I'm, a, I'm attracted to material. I just have sort of gone for it, and uh, you know, I've, I've looked in, into to history a lot of times to 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 find interesting characters because I just feel like they're just so much more original. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they are strangely and 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 bizarre. People's people's motivations and choices all they puzzle me all the time. You know what I mean? You you know you're you're doing a scene and you think. Okay, he breaks up with his girlfriend. He should have this sort of traditional response. But then, if you're like looking at it like a historian and you look back at that time period of their life, they took a completely different direction. You wonder why. And you, just people are so interesting. You know, their their choices are so interesting. Do you approach playing a real person differently at all? I mean, do you feel a certain responsibility knowing that this person has yeah, for sure. family and ancestors? I just like the investigative process of it. I really do. I think that kind of. It's almost like doing a college thesis on somebody, and you know, like I said, with the Aviator, that was I read I read a book on Howard Hughes uh, in my early twenties, and I tried to develop that for many, 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 many years. Michael Mann wrote a screenplay, and what I was going to do with Michael Mann, and he had just done Ollie and said he was biopicked out, and <laughs> I, I respected that, and then I brought it to Marty, and uh, thankfully he did it, and. He read was called The Aviator, and uh, you know I didn't know if, if he would respond to it because we'd just done Gangs in New York, and he uh, he basically said to me, "Look, uh, this screenplay is interesting because it's about you know the minutia of germs within you know this incredible tycoon, this guy that is victim to his own sort of psychosis," mm -hmm. and he goes. I picked it up and I read Aviator on the front title and I said, well, I don't know anything about aviation. But then I said to myself, well, I didn't know anything about boxing and I did Raging Bull, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider this. And uh, thankfully he did it. But yeah, I just, I love the, I mean, for, for the Aviator, for example, I did this entire road trip sort of meeting everybody that I knew that ever knew Howard Hughes or had Howard Hughes stories. And it was, I was like an investigative journalist. It was so much fun to dig into history like that. And and try to um, encapsulate, you know, where he was at, the, at certain time periods in his life and the choices that he made.
Well, he may not be real, but I don't think any historical figure comes bigger than Romeo mm-hmm. um, in Romeo and Juliet, which was your next film. Um, what was its um, What was the appeal of doing Shakespeare, but it's Shakespeare via Baz Luhrmann? Oh, uh, you know, it was really Baz. Uh, Baz is such an interesting, dynamic force, and so enthusiastic about creating art and and experimenting that you sit alone with him for, you know, an hour and you just want to do anything that he says. It's amazing. I mean, he's, he's, he's incredible. He's so inspiring. He really is. And he's, he is, uh, and he's a director that takes a lot of chances and he, and a lot of the stuff is incredibly broad, but when it comes down to the, to the text, to the actual words, he is, he is incredibly precise and persistent about, um, you know, doing the literature justice. And with Romeo and Juliet, you know, he was incredibly precise about it too, but at the same time, it was this incredibly new journey of trying to modernize the bard, which was, you know, uh, very scary at the time for a lot of us. <laughs> of course, we have to talk about the big one, Titanic. Right. Uh, when you uh, signed on to make it, you, you had no way of knowing that it would become this phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, what was it that initially appealed to you about that script? Well, it didn't uh, initially appeal to me because I think I took a long time to just get my mind around uh, doing a film of that nature. I, uh, you know, done all these independent movies, but it was really, you know, my conversations with Kate Winslet, who's been a lifelong friend since doing that movie, and um, her her passion about the project, and then meeting Jim after that, and. It was an experiment to try to do something that was this incredible epic, and I it was it was a mind blowing, insane, thrilling experience for the both of us. It really was uh, it was unlike any other experience I've ever had. Really, is it true the first scene you shot was the one where you're sketching her nude? I believe so. <laughs> Maybe so they threw you right into it. <laughs> I think so. I don't remember specifically. I mean, obviously, the, one of the reasons, the reason for the film's huge success is the chemistry with mm. you and Kate. Uh, was that instantaneous? Was it something you guys worked on before? Shooting? I think we just really got along right off the bat. I mean, we, you know, uh, she she is such a committed actress, and I saw that at God, what were we, twenty two, something like that. She was so committed and focused and amazing, and worked so hard on that movie and. Of course, you know, the movie went over by many, many months, and it was an incredibly hard experience for both of us to do. But, you know, it was rewarding at the same time. It was, it was rewarding for both of us because, you know, we, uh, we got to act alongside each other in a, in a film that I think, you know, touched a lot of people around the world. And uh, I'm proud of it. I'm very proud of the movie. Was there a certain moment when you knew it had become, uh, you know, part of the cultural zeitgeist? Again, you know, I like I said, I, 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 I didn't at all grasp how far-reaching this movie was. Mm-hmm. I people would say to me, you know, this movie's doing really well, and I'm like, great, that's wonderful. And like, like, no, 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 really, really, really well. I'm like, so it's doing really, really, really well. Great. So what does that mean? Well, you're gonna hit a billion dollars. I'm like, so that's a good average for you know <laughs> how a movie does. <laughs> Like, no, no, it's, it's en route to being, you know, incredibly successful, maybe the most successful. I'm like, oh, okay, so then that's really good, right? <laughs> I, I, these, these numbers that 
people were throwing at me. I didn't understand box office statistics or how many people were going to repeatedly see this movie, Teenage Girls, and it just became this <laughs> this thing. You know, I I don't I don't really know how to describe it, but you know, it was really Jim's writing and his story and that romance and uh, that those sort of uh, I know those those lovers that uh, you know basically at the end of the film don't get to be together and that it. A lot of tears, I suppose, yeah. you know, for people at the end of that movie. But uh, there was no way to foresee what um, what kind of impact that would have had. And it was, like I said, it was an experiment for both of us. Mm -hmm. Both Kate and I had no idea. While we were making the movie, I mean, it was on the cover of Hollywood Reporter, disaster, this film is a catastrophe. <laughs> $300 million being spent on this, you know, gigantic film that's destined to fail. It's like, it's, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> So when it came out, it was, uh, like I said, we, we, we didn't even know. We were just, our heads were spinning. Yeah. Our heads were spinning. It became such a phenomenon. I mean, to be at the center of that madness, how did you keep yourself grounded during that time? Or did you? Maybe you didn't. <laughs> I basically kind of ran away from it all, yeah. I think. You know, I, I ran away from, not from, I, it wasn't uh, necessarily the success of it all, but it was just, you know, I think it's probably a lot worse nowadays for uh, people who are sort of pushed into the limelight like that because of the media and the intense sort of scrutiny of uh, of the internet and all that. But even at that time, for me, it was it was you know I was nowhere to, nowhere to sort of run to, <laughs> and I sort of I wanted to say okay, I want to let everything kind of calm down, let the dust settle from this movie, regroup, and go find a project that I'm really really passionate about and I really want to do and. <laughs> So I, uh, you know, I, I didn't work for a while. Mm -hmm. it, you took like a year and a half off at least? Yeah, something like that. And uh, it was, but at that time, I, it was when I really said to myself, okay, you know, here I am with this incredible opportunity. What am I going to do with it? You know, what am I going to do? You know, people dream about being in a position where they can finance a film based on their name. And I said to myself, all right, uh, let's go back to the drawing board, so to speak. And now you can make movies that you want. And not that Titanic wasn't something that I wanted to do, but you can really be uh, in control of your career like never before. You know, you can, uh, you can develop things and, and seek things out that are interesting to you and, and, and pursue them and, and get them financed. And your next movie was The Beach. Yeah, The Beach, yeah. Yes, with Danny Boyle. I remember seeing Train Spotting in um. Cannes and uh, Danny Boyle's work was just, I was, it was so incredibly, punk rock that movie mm -hmm. and I and I just uh, I immediately you know they I, they offered me the film and I wanted to work with them really really bad really really bad it's interesting because at, at this you know I talked about being intimidated by De Niro and who he was and his stardom when you when you showed up on set were you aware of how I mean were people treating you differently when you arrived on set now could you feel it oh yeah it was different yeah it was different you know I always just came into it like an actor and and but then the it was the whole pressure of this being a film that is you know has no spectacle to it it's based on your your name and your and your uh you know who you are and you're 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 sort of the the headliner here mm -hmm. so you know it was sort of I, I suppose people were looking at me to do certain things that I was unaware of <laughs> you know as a as the lead in the movie for the first time but um it was um lead in the movie of a film that was like larger budget and you know was financed because of me so 
but I just, you know, I, I tried my best to just, you know, stick to doing the material as, as best I could, really. Uh, after The Beach, you began a run of truly exceptional films. Um, you worked with Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks mm -hmm. in Catch Me If You Can. It's actually strange to me you hadn't worked with Spielberg yet at this point. Yeah, I'd come straight from Gangs of New York and, and oh, yeah. went straight to, uh, to Catch Me If You Can right after that. Yeah. Wow, not too shabby. Um, so Gangs of New York actually came first. Yes. yes. Okay. Um, and this was the first of five collaborations with Martin Scorsese, which has proven to be one of cinema's greatest partnerships. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you, you, De Niro first told him about you, and, and I believe you met him, like, right after Gilbert Grape, briefly? You met, uh, yes, Marty, yes. Yeah, yeah I, I ran into him at some sort of uh, uh, after party for a film, and I walked up to him and I was kind of in shock to meet him and I said hi and he goes hi and he was kind of on his way out he's always usually on his way out somewhere, <laughs> somewhere. Like, hi kid hi hi how you doing Bob told me about you yeah, really great job in Gilbert Crave I saw your other films too okay great, great to meet you I'm like <laughs> so uh so I said wow he's seen my work he's actually seen yeah. movies that I've done this is incredible wow so that kind of got the clock ticking, um, not clock ticking, but my mind thinking, mm -hmm. maybe I could work with this guy one day. So I asked my agent if there was anything that he had in mind for someone in my age range, and they sort of researched that in his development, he had been wanting to do this film about you know the five points, turn of the century in New York, and it had been a passion project of him, this book, Gangs of New York, that, um, that he'd been trying to do for 20 years, and I, and I, kept sort of penetrating his representation with mine and saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And uh, uh, I was eating my pad thai doing uh, the beach. I remember the moment when I got the call that I had my noodles in my hand. He goes, he wants to do the movie with you. And I dropped my pad thai and couldn't eat. And <laughs> um, it's interesting because I actually spoke to him and he said that, you know, he met you after Gilbert Grape and uh, you guys had talked maybe and then Titanic came out and he was like, oh, this, this kid's never going to work with me. He's <laughs> gone off to become a movie star. <laughs> and uh, he was so impressed that you came through for Gangs of New York. And he had this quote that I love that he said, <clears throat> that was when he learned he's an actor first and foremost and he checks any stardom at the door. <laughs> um, and Well, you know. That being said, I mean, who wouldn't want to work with Mark Scorsese? Yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, he selling himself a little I mean, short. Any, anyone yeah. <laughs> would jump at the opportunity to work with him, of course. And uh, obviously your co-star in this movie, Daniel Day-Lewis, mm -hmm. um, he was in retirement at the time. Yes, he yeah. was. How did you guys get him out? We were talking about who was going to play this incredible role of Bill the Butcher. And um, a few names came up and somebody said, it may have been Marty who said, what about Daniel? And people immediately said, well, he's retired. He's not, he's a cobbler. He's making movie, making shoes in Italy. So. Um, Still sounds absurd. <laughs> so uh, it was actually my job <laughs> to, get, really? to go uh, speak with him because I think that uh, he was, it was this kind of thing between both, both of them had worked together, uh, you know, previously on, um, on, um, Age of Innocence, of course, and uh, but he had he had stopped acting. So um, Scorsese actually said to me, "Look, I, I, I'm not sure how Daniel feels if he's ready to work or not. You know, you're another actor. You should, you know, have a conversation with him and suss it out." And I'll never forget, you know, meeting him in New York. I went to his brownstone, sort of knocked on the door, 
and and he and he opened the door and he goes, "Hi, hi, how are you?" And I go, "Hi, nice to meet you, Leonardo." Daniel, he goes, "Shall we walk?" I go, "Okay." <laughs> and we started we started walking through Central Park, and he didn't say anything to me for the first couple minutes. So I said, "All right, I'm not going to say anything to him either." <laughs> said, so we kind of walked in silence, which for about ten minutes through Central Park. Never met one another, and just walked. It was incredibly surreal, and I just said to myself, "I'm gonna wait till he's ready to speak." Finally, middle of Central Park, he finds a bench and goes, "That looks good. Would you like to sit?" <laughs> we sat down, and we started talking about acting. And you know, he uh, and so I immediately asked him. I said, "Look, you know, there's the role of a." Of a gangster in the turn of the century in New York, who's a butcher who carries butcher knives with a top hat and a mustache in a Martin Scorsese movie. <laughs> who in their right mind wouldn't want to do this? And he's like, he said, Leo, you have to understand, it's not about not about not wanting to work with him on a film like this. Marty is the reason that I became an actor. I saw Mean Streets, and that film. Was so raw and incredible, and made me, you know, inspired to act. And I don't want to be of disservice to him. Mm. And I said, "Well, I'm I'm sure that we can figure something out." <laughs> you know, and and so it was like this slow sort of conversation that we had. And uh, we went out to dinner a few times. It was actually、uh, Toby who said to him, "You know, I think it's when somebody has a talent like that, like yours,、yeah. it's almost their responsibility to." To、uh, to do it, you know, to to get back in the saddle, and I think he slightly disagreed at first, but eventually, thank thank God, he said yes, and I got to work with somebody who was a huge, huge, another huge influence on、uh, on 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 myself as an actor. I mean, I didn't. There was there's there's commitment, and then there's Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me, Toby told him that with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Please. <laughs> you didn't quite say that, but, <laughs> but I remember the first day. We were, I mean, we developed this for a while. We were there for months. They built all these sets in Chinachita Studios. I mean, we had the five points. It was like it was the most unbelievable set ever because you walked into a world and you submerged yourself back in time. They built a wharf. They built a Chinese pagoda. Entire neighborhood, the five where all the five points got together. And I remember, you know, walking around this. Crazy set, and then we're working on the script constantly every day, and then it was like two days before we started shooting, and you know we've been saying hi Daniel, hi hi Marty, you know good morning <laughs> stuff like that, and Daniel just kind of I kind of walked by and he and Daniel went,、uh, Daniel looked I, I said morning Daniel and he went,、mm. <laughs> and I said oh shit game on. Game on. <laughs> I didn't say. I don't think. I don't think、yeah. I said another word to him through the nine months that we were there. We we.、Uh, it was just you know he was Bill the Butcher, and that、It's、was、amazing. it. He was Bill the Butcher, and、uh, you know, and、uh, was only until the last day of reshoots that we kind of looked at each other and laughed, you know, and like cracked a smile. I mean, it obviously works for him. Whatever he's doing, do you do you think you could do that though? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I've done that to a certain degree myself, but you know. I think to each his own,、mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, his level of commitment is just so 
absolute and he goes home you know he goes home in character but you know to a certain degree i'm sure he has to kiss his child and his wife and go to bed <laughs> but you know it's it's that that kind of level of commitment was inspiring again for me i mean his i mean he was just phenomenal and in character all the time and you know again that i think as an actor being able to witness that and seeing the sort of heights of commitment like that was another stage of of learning for me um so did you know when you were working on Gangs of New York that this collaboration with Martin Scorsese was, was you know, going to continue on and, and change your life? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, no. So you went to him with The Aviator. Yeah, I mean, to tell you the truth, it's just been very s simply this, that um, we work well together. I think we sh we're of different generations, but we sh share similar tastes and material and the type of movies that we want to do. And I think accidentally we've just... You know, after The Aviator, things have sort of come to us simultaneously or we've developed things together. And, you know, I suppose I've been convincing a few times with him and persuading him to do certain material because I just feel, felt like there was nobody else for the job. And certainly with The Aviator and Wolf, those were two movies that I was sort of hammering him on. And Gangs of New York, as a matter of fact, yeah. But Shutter Island just sort of came about and he offered it to me as well as The Departed. So with The Departed, he came to you. Yes. Um, what is it like? Uh, I mean, you know, he was the, <laughs> this, this is dumbing it down a bit, but he was the Susan Lucci of the Oscars. This was the guy that everybody loved. Marty. Could never win, was regarded as the best filmmaker ever. So to be such an integral part of the movie where he finally wins the Oscar, hmm. that must have felt pretty great. Well, yeah, I mean, if you talk about Marty's work, he's really been, to me, the heartbeat of American cinema ever mm -hmm. since Mean Streets. I mean, the... Uh, his contribution to film is just in incredible and breathtaking. And and as far as him not winning, I think, you know, if anything, uh, you know, it's 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 strange. I think he, he he always probably felt, even though he's highly regarded as one of the greatest directors of all time, I think he always felt a part of the New York establishment of filmmakers, guys that were sort of doing films that are really a little more a little more raw, a little more dangerous, a little more out there and and never quite being accepted by, you know, uh, the West Coast, mm -hmm. so to speak. And I think, you know, it was, it was, it was of course, um, you know, overdue that he won for The Departed. Of course, overdue. I mean, uh, but, you know, didn't Kubrick and Hitchcock never win Oscars? That's I what think I heard so. as well, which is incredible. Incredible. How the hell did they never win? <laughs> uh, before we get to your most recent collaboration, I just want to touch on a couple other recent films, um, starting with one of my favorites, um, Christopher Nolan's Inception. Mm -hmm. um, so was it all a dream or what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had my own interpretation, and that was that I got back to reality. Uh, I, ha I had to make my own choice on that one, yeah. Really? Did but you of ever course, that was set up from the beginning that Christopher, I don't want to give anything away, but... It's supposed to be ambiguous, you know, you're yeah. supposed to extract what you want from that yeah. ending. But as an optimist, do you think he gets home? That's what was, that was my choice. Yeah. That was my choice. <laughs> um, I know he's notoriously discreet with his scripts. So had you been looking to do something together? I mean, did he let you read the script before you signed on? Yes, I read the script. Uh, it was a very sort of top secret script, absolutely. And, uh, you know... In, he had, he, I think he'd constructed this screenplay many, many years beforehand, even before Batman, before Dark Knight. And 
sort of reworked it again. And then it was, I think it was, uh, for, for both of us, it was a matter of finding the character within that. And we got to sit down for, for two months and sort of uh, bring out all the sort of subplot of the, you know, my character having this past life, with the, not past life, but this life in his own subconscious with, uh, with his wife, where he almost had an entire relationship and another, you know, another life that went on, but all in his mind. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about Inception is it's it's so beautiful visually and overpowering. I think people forget how emotional it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's about a man trying to get back to his children. Yeah, that was what was kind of uh, paramount for both of us in in the in the pre-production process mm -hmm. was bringing that that storyline across as much as we could within the, the sort of incredible matrix of of phenomenal stuff that Chris did in that movie. It's kind of mind-blowing what he pulled off in that movie. Yeah. Um, the other movie I want to talk about really quick is Django Unchained, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> where you played, yeah, <laughs> Calvin J. Candy, um, who is obviously a, a completely vile character, but it's a very fun performance. Um, and I, I think this might be the first time we really see you play an out-and-out -out villain. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, was that part of the appeal? I wanted to work with Tarantino for sure, and that was a, a, a very interesting set to walk on. I mean, there's there hadn't been, you know, many films up into that time about uh, about slavery. Certainly, a, a film of that sort of scale, and playing such an incredibly detestable human being like that, and and so such a well written character. I, it was really the first day that you know I sort of talked with the other actors and and, and Jamie and Samuel, and was like, you know. You know how far do we go with this? And they mm. both said, "You better, you better go the distance." Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm, "I'm prepared to. I'm prepared to go to the distance." But like, look, you know, it, this is obviously incredibly touchy subject matter. But you know, if if you don't play this guy as the worst possible son of a bitch that could that could ever be, you know, people are going to think we're sugarcoating this issue, and it's an important issue to talk about as far as American history is concerned. I said, "I totally agree," and let's let's go. But the first day was <laughs> quite and, uh, quite crazy. I mean, I had two fighters, and I was calling them the N word every single day, and it was it was tough. It was really tough. It was actually uh, took a, a a long time to adjust to. You never quite felt comfortable, but that's part of what we do, you know. Did you was at the end of the day? Did you do a lot of apologizing? Just I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well. Everyone was supportive. The entire yeah. cast was, you know, supportive. You know, we know we're making a movie, and 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 like I said, the 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 entire cast was kind of, especially Jamie was incredibly encouraging to me. You know, kept, you know, giving me the thumbs up when when I was being incredibly horrible. <laughs> um, I think you actually shot The Great Gatsby before Django. Yeah. Um, reuniting with Baz Luhrmann. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Is it Baz? Baz. Baz. God, I've been... Baz, Baz, tomato, tomato. <laughs> Mr. Luhrmann. Um, and I've heard that you really, you were very meticulous in your research into this character. Um, were you willing to expound on that? Well, you're taking on Fitzgerald, or taking on one of the greatest novels ever written. Certainly, what's maybe considered the greatest American novel, possibly. I mean, I think so. I remember reading it in high school, and uh, you know, I, I and I also saw the the Redford version in high school, and I identified with it, but in a completely different way uh, from when I picked it up again, uh, you know, as an adult. And 
it was really one of the most existential novels I've I've ever read, and 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 it's one of those novels that you can keep investigating and keep trying to find answers to. And Fitzgerald's words, and and the it really is a lot to do with the editing of that book. That's so fascinating, you know, because we we took a lot from um, Tremalchio, which was the unedited version of of The Great Gatsby, and that's what I kept referring to back and forth because. So much of Gatsby is mysterious and unanswered, and that's the beauty of that character, and why he's such a sort of almost almost mythological, you know, uh, character in 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 in, uh, in our culture. And um, so, for me, it was about going back to Trimalchio to find Fitzgerald's original intent and motivation with Gatsby. You know, what he meant by certain lines. What you know, what he was saying to Daisy when he would sometimes sound obscure in *The Great Gatsby*. Tremalchio was a lot more overt mm -hmm. and a lot more, you know, spelled out uh, to the point where it wasn't, you know, it was a subpar novel. But like I said, it was the editing and what was taken out of Tremalchio, where sort of Gatsby's interrupted and just sort of trails off or wanders off or says something that's elusive and you're like, what the hell did he mean by that? You know. But for me as an actor, it was the compare and contrast of those two novels constantly and you know thank god baz handed me that because it gave me so many answers thank god we had that as actors because it gave me so many answers and we didn't we didn't change a lot of the dialogue from gatsby maybe a few lines here and there but i always understood what i felt i understood closer to what fitzgerald's original intent was from that book and uh, Mr. Lerman um, <laughs> said that he, you actually hesitated at taking on the role, partially maybe the intimidation of playing Gatsby, but also he said you don't really like to play characters where the looks are such a strong part oh, of it. That's not true. He's a liar. <laughs> no, it was, it was completely the, uh, you know, yeah. taking on Greg Gatsby. Yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's an incredible undertaking and... and uh, but we, it was like a theater group. We were really, and what I was blown away by by doing that movie, and, and this is the truth, was the level of commitment of the actors in Australia. I mean, we should be ashamed. Yeah, really? <laughs> These people out there, they, they're isolated, you know, on this continent, and, they're, and they're, they know about Hollywood, but they're all, they all work four times as hard. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how hungry they are to be a part of the industry, and they're just constantly focused on, uh, you know, everyone around us. Every every single day was just in there, in, in into the novel, reading everything, working their ass off. I was so impressed by the Australian actors there. I can't say enough about them, really. Not that we should all be ashamed, but <laughs> no, but it was it was inspiring to see, you know, a place that was sort of isolated on the other part of the world that, you know, wants to be a part of the American movie industry and the the ferocity that they had. To, to sort of stand out. Um, that, of course, brings us to The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, such an amazing performance and kind of a, a great combination of all the things you really excelled at over the years. You're playing a real person, um, a, sometimes an unreliable narrator, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just this larger-than-life character. But like you said, these things really happened. <laughs> um, and like The Aviator, I understand, this was something you really shepherded for years. Yeah, this was another... This, uh, there's been really two projects in my life that uh, I've really pushed as hard as I can to, to make happen and get greenlit. And that one was The Aviator and this was the other one. And uh, it was a seven-year process. 
to we we, we originally found the uh, found the book that we optioned the book and I think Jordan himself kind of liked the idea of Marty and I doing the movie so we got the rights to it it was kind of a, a, a sought after novel and we had a we had a screenplay pretty soon afterwards with Terry Winter that blew me away with these incredible speeches and this this insane debaucherous hedonistic world that he created and he captured all the best stuff from the book and we were prepared to do it at at one point and very early on and I, I remember we got a certain budget that was really really low balled for the kind of you know uh, you know uh, the epic nature of what this movie needed to be it needed to be opulent and it needed to be all about this guy's you know you know wealth and decadence and and Marty kind of felt this the the budget wasn't right but more so than that he you know as he said to me many times like he's look I'm I'm seven years old and at this point I don't want to have resistance in making the movies that I want mm -hmm. and and you know if I'm going to do a film and I'm going to put these people in this culture up on screen I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it and and so he kind of dropped dropped out of doing it because he felt a certain resistance from the studio about the nature of of how deplorable and disgusting these characters are at times <laughs> up on screen, and it kind of fell through. At which point, you know, the the sort of industry pushes things along, and another director got attached, and another director. But I never, I could never say yes to it, and I don't know what it was. But I just said, "There's nobody that's going to capture the essence of these people and give the actors enough time to play," and you know explore the darker nature and the, and the you know the comedic elements of this of, of these characters except for Marty he has to do this so I waited and waited and waited and waited and then sort of uh, seven years down the line I uh, I found financing from people that are outside of the industry that said you know not only do we want you to do this movie but we want you to really go for it like okay. go to the extremes uh, because that's the truth of, of, of this world and I came back to Marty and said, we're not going to get this opportunity very often, You're almost never. You know, mm -hmm. I remember times where I could finance things like Blood Diamond or, or The Aviator. I don't think those can be financed right now. So really? it's really, I think it's really, you know, it's up to the, up to people who I think have, who want to take some chances, who run into some, you know, uh, luck with financing that say, you know, there's a marketplace for these other types of movies because I think about six or seven years ago, studios just, Kind of said, look, this is our limit. This is our cap on this this type of movie. It's got to have special effects. It's got to be, you know, uh, and it's it's got to be a part of, uh, you know, uh, you know, the bigger sort of broader scope. And uh, they've stopped doing movies like that. Mm -hmm. Really, it's it's almost been like this strange sort of unspoken thing. Yeah. There's like a memo to everyone in the industry: no more dramas above this level that don't have these checkpoints. You're screwed. So it's, it, that's why we talk about this year and a lot, a lot of the movies I feel like that are getting done, it's either the you know, ultra, low, ultra low budget films or it's people that are fans of film mm -hmm. that say, we want to see these other types of movies out there and some of them take bigger budgets and we're going to take a chance on them and thank God for them. I love it, the age of 70, Martin Scorsese can still do new things on film. Mm -hmm. Still surprise me, and I love that after 25 years of doing this, you can surprise me. Um, I want to talk specifically about the Quaalude scene, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which ranks amongst, I mean, it might be my favorite Scorsese 
segment ever. <laughs> and just what you put yourself through. I understand you hurt, you truly hurt yourself. Yeah, I was in the neck brace for a little bit. But it was no, yeah, something like that. No big deal. Well, yeah. it was it was three days of crawling around like that, but it was I got over it. <laughs> and I understand you got some inspiration from that scene uh, from a YouTube video. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew that. You know, when I said to when I was talking with Marty about this this uh, this movie, I said, "Look, it's got to feel to me." Uh, how the segment in, in Goodfellas felt with Ray Liotta with the cocaine and the marijuana, and marijuana, and the marinara sauce. <laughs> cocaine and marijuana goes together. <laughs> cocaine and marinara sauce with the helicopters. The whole movie should have that energy. So we knew that this Quaalude sequence, which was a combination of many scenes that we fused together to add more tension to, had to even, had to even up the ante of that. And so we kind of just, that was the, the beauty of having uh, you know, financiers and people that really encourage us. This was really our movie. You know, it's, it's, you know, many people say that, but, you know, you, you can't help but be influenced by other voices when you're making a movie. Uh, it, it just, it, it gets into your subconscious. You can't help but feel, thinking, second guessing your instincts when it comes to decisions that you make with characters or how crude certain characters are, what distance you go to or, you know, all these things come into play if you hear those voices, but we didn't, it was just, you know, us as artists saying, this is the film we're going to make and it's going to be, you know, crude and it's going to be, you know, hedonistic and it's going to be hardcore, uh, but this is reflective of the culture around us and this world and we're going to tell the truth about it. And so we got, we really got to make a film like they used to make in the 70s. They, I mean, it's true. I mean, this was uh, the director's vision. This is back to the era, you know, before Heaven's Gate or whatever, when directors really had the power to do whatever they wanted on a large scale like this. So that I'm really, really proud of. I'm really proud because I don't see many, many, many films like this getting made nowadays. It's a big gamble. It was a big gamble, this movie. But as an actor, when you're reading the script and it's like, you know, Jordan has a lit candle in his ass. <laughs> is there any part of you that is like, you know, maybe, was there anything that you hesitated to do? Of course there was a few moments like that. In the, in the <laughs> of course there were a few moments. But I, I, we, we were encouraged from the onset, and this was, what was so cool and fun about it, is that he immediately said to us, you know, sort of anything goes. And we all, every actor on set, looked at this like we were in the Roman Empire, like it was a giant Hieronymus Bosch painting, like we were just hedonistic to the utter extreme, and we were only, it, it's so fun to play a char character that has absolutely no moral compass, and, and, and you, your only question every day is, what is good for me? Mm. That's it, <laughs> you know? And it just, you know, uh, actors have said many times before, it's, it's, it's so fun to play bad, but it's, it's, it's been so, you know, uh, it's, it's been so fun to play a character like this that just is a vacuum cleaner of consumption. He just, just you know, just never, never questions his, his impulses. And so it, all this sort of took a life on its own. And I think the whole movie really took on a life of its own as we were shooting. Because we had, we didn't know quite what we were going to do, yeah. you know, and it just, it just became this other thing. Is it true that you didn't realize it was a comedy until you saw it? <laughs> No, no, I mean, no, no. I, I knew we did a lot of crazy shit yeah. in this movie, so that was funny. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, as Marty said many times before, he wanted to be authentic with this world, and they happened to be doing 
in, incredibly despicable, crazy things. And this was their environment. So it, it was it's, it was going to be funny. You know, it was going to be funny. But we didn't say we're making a comedy. We right. Didn't, we didn't say we're going to push the comedic element of it. It was just kind of the wildness of Jordan's life and his and his book. And this is a situation where you're playing a real-life person, but you actually have the real Jordan Belfort to consult with. Yeah. How often did you go to him? Because I, I believe Martin didn't really want to, to meet him personally. No, no, he didn't. Uh, he, as, as well as with uh, Henry Hill and Goodfellas, he wanted to be able to keep a distance mm -hmm. from the subject to make his own film and, and determine you know, what, what type of movie he wanted to make. For me, it, I'd never been able to actually play a character where I could call them on the phone. It was a revelation kind of, you know, I'd be, we'd be in the office and I'd call him on his cell and I'd be like, okay, so what else was in this room? You know, is there, you know, uh, you know, he's a chimpanzee and, you know, uh, and <laughs> on roller skates. Okay, let's get a chimpanzee. It was, but more than that, he, they took me through every scene and every, and, kind of gave me the, the beat by beat of his motivation, where his head was at. That was a, a whole different dynamic, you know? It was a whole different dynamic yeah. to making a movie and incredibly beneficial. Are you the kind of actor who takes work home with you? Like, were you fun to be around at this, while making this movie? <laughs> I don't know if I was fun. I was, uh, yeah, it was such a constant adrenaline rush. Every day was just, we were all, you know, kicking on you know every possible cylinder and, and it, it, it took so much energy out of me but yeah I mean I think I took on a different attitude while making this movie Joan and I both did and you know we'd walk around and have to sort of look at each other and remind one another that we're still human beings and, <laughs> and <laughs> with thoughts and emotions and feelings and and uh, but this was this is one of those rare opportunities where Everything was so loose, and he allowed us to really experiment every single day. And so much of it was improvised and and um, freeform. You know, it was it was a unique experience that way because I think so many movies that I've done have have been so uh, you know specific to the plot and the structure of the story. But this was something that kind of grew and evolved as we were making the movie and we we're making you know decisions on the day, really pivotal ones. I just don't know where you found the energy. <laughs> I get exhausted just watching. I haven't the movie. worked since. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was the last movie you did. Yeah. Yeah. The last movie I did. Um, I do want to take some audience questions if, if we have time. Uh, Denny Dormodi he wants to know the single most important acting lesson you learned from working with Martin Scorsese. I think that it uh, it really ha Look, you know, I I I do I've done these films with him and I've had an incredible opportunity to learn from, you know one of the greatest artists of our time. But to tell you the truth, I am so focused on what I'm doing every single day that it's so hard to pick up. You know, people have asked me if I want to direct, but it's so hard to pick up uh, on, on what he's doing in his process because I'm off in my own world and then we connect together. But he said something to me in this last movie that was just, he hit it so on the head that it, uh, uh, everything sort of made sense for me. We were, we, we were making a film about pretty deplorable characters, pretty unlikable people with, a, with Wall Street in the title, wondering if audiences would at all connect with these characters or this world or go along the journey with them. And, and he said to me, look, Leo, you know, I've done many films in, in my life, and I have to say, as, as long as you're honest and authentic about your portrayal of, of who these people are, no matter how despicable at times, 
no matter what part of you know the darker nature of humanity you're exploring, audiences will always connect with that and go along with that journey with you. And, and that's what I've found in my career. And I said, shit, that makes sense. I mean, uh, here's, here's a guy that came out of the gate with Mean Streets and did Taxi Driver, Last Temptation of Christ. And that, that was his motto, that's been his motto in filmmaking. And, and, and that's why his films last for such a long period of time. And, and everything kind of clicked for me with that one comment. Um, I do think we're out of time. I'm so sorry. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on a great 20 thank years. You. Thank you. More than 20 years. And especially this year. Thank you, guys. Sorry, I didn't know. No, it's all good. Thank you, guys, for saying. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.